It's hard to imagine for me personally, but this is our 52nd study here in our series, Simply the Savior. So we have passed a year. We've been through all kinds of passages as we've looked at the Lord Jesus' life and his ministry. And we're going to take a little step back and we're going to look uh, very briefly at Jesus, as he spoke the Beatitudes, we covered those. But then he went on to talk about the behavior that we ought to have if we really believe what he just said. And so to set the scene, you can turn to Luke chapter 6 and we'll pick up in verse 27. We're going to be looking at quite a long passage of scripture tonight, but it's important. Every once in a while we'll take and we break down really just a small passage of scripture and it by itself speaks very clearly, but this happens to be one of those passages, at least the way Luke records it, that is so important to look at the the overall context of what Jesus is saying. And, And now imagine we're going to pick up directly after the Lord Jesus finishes the Beatitudes. And so he's finished the Beatitudes and he speaks to this this mass that's gathered on the Mount of the Beatitudes. So again to take us back They're on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. They're about a half mile from the shoreline, uh, up on a a hill that overlooks the Sea of Galilee. They're looking down at this cove, and that would have been the cove of the sower. We covered that parable, the parable of the sower of the seed. And remember those seeds that fell on the stony ground, and those that fell on the path, and those that fell on the good soil, and those that fell amongst the thorns. Jesus is is looking down as he delivers Luke's account here uh, of what follows the Beatitudes. And he begins to talk about how it is that we can keep this attitude of gratitude, that our hearts would be so transformed by living this way that it would literally do the impossible in our lives. And so it's in that context, having spoken these amazing things, forgive, be merciful. He, he goes on now to say, okay, let, let's do a little test. Let's see what you heard. Let's see what you understand. Let's see if you actually get what it is that I've just shared with you and how impossible it is. Because the Beatitudes, when you glance at them, you go, there's no way that it's just not happening. And so it is in verse 27, that's the reason that the word but begins the rest of this passage that we'll look at. We're going to take all the way to verse 49, so some 22 verses tonight. But you'll see why as we move through these. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your people. Thank you for this amazing congregation that's gathered together. Lord, lots of other things. They could have been down in Long Beach celebrating the end of the Grand Prix or Lord, maybe at that Clippers game that's going to tip off. But Lord, we've chosen to be here with you. And we pray that you'd reward us for that. Lord, as we've gathered together to study your word and to hear you speak to us, God, would you overshadow all the things that are Jeff? And would you, Jesus, speak to us as your people? Could we hear what the disciples heard that day? Lord, would it 
pierce our hearts the words that you spoke. And so we give you the time. Pray that you'd use it now for your wonderful purposes to change and transform us. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So he begins this passage about beatitude behavior or that attitude of gratitude or agape in action. The beatitude should lead to us being not simply hearers but doers. And so he says, verse 27, Luke chapter 6, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. You see, he's challenging real faith to produce real works. He's making the statement, look, you've heard me speak these things that are seemingly impossible. And now I want to challenge you. What did you hear? How did you hear it? And what are you going to do with it? And so love your enemies. Anybody in here find it hard to love your enemies? Uh, probably all of us, if we were honest. It's not an easy thing to love your enemies. Sometimes it's not easy to love people who love you. Much less love your enemies. And so Jesus begins this, this journey through these really four different vignettes, these, these parables, and he begins with something that's seemingly impossible. How do you accomplish the impossible? What is it that you could do? What kind of behavior could you undertake that would bring you to the place that you would love your enemies? And so Jesus is going to elaborate this concept, and he's going to give us four uh, different types of behavior that we need to exhibit if we're really being people that emulate Christ. And we want to do that, amen? We want to do as we saw this morning. We want to follow Christ. We want to follow Paul's example of following Jesus as best as we possibly can. And you see that radical behavior, that that kind of behavior that when you think about it, it's so different than the world. Because the world says, somebody's mean to you, you be mean to them. Matter of fact, you need to be a little more mean to them than they were to you so that you can get the upper hand so that no one will ever take advantage of you, right? That's what the world says. And, and I can tell you that when you do marriage counseling, that very often is what you hear. You hear one person trying to outdo the other person in severity as to who has done the most to the other person. It's like, oh yeah, well if you do that to me, then I'll do this to you. And along comes Jesus and he says, no, I, I say to you, love people with whom you are having difficulty and he's not talking about just kind of you know toning it down a little bit he's not saying watch what you say he's literally saying you agape owe them you love them completely unconditionally unmerited favor is what I want you to give out to people who treat you poorly well I'm not doing that matter of fact I can tell you I, probably a large percentage of the time when I will give counsel, I go, you know, you, you know what Scripture says, and I will, I'll be kind, I'll be gentle in delivering it. Go, you know that Scripture says you need to forgive. Well, I'm not going to forgive. You need to be merciful. Well, I don't want to be merciful. You see, it grates against our human nature. 
And so Jesus begins with this radical kind of behavior that we should have towards our enemies. You see, the driving force of all of this is that at all times, under every circumstances, our response is supposed to be love. All times, every circumstance, our response is supposed to be love. So when you have a problem with your children, you're supposed to respond in love. When you have a problem in your marriage, you're supposed to respond in love. When you have a problem at work, you're supposed to respond in love. When you have someone who does something to you and you absolutely loathe what they have done, you're not supposed to try and get even. You're supposed to try and out-love them. And the reality of the depth of that love is borne out in the way that you respond. You see, most of us can control ourselves for a couple of nanoseconds, right? We, we can kind of, well, you know, at least I won't kill you right now. We, we can, most of us accomplish that task for a short period of time. But what happens when that's tested over time? Can I ask you that? What happens when it's tested over time? The real you comes out, doesn't it? You see that one time when you're just like, you're kind of, and you grin and bear it, and you like squeeze out all of the air out of your body. And you're like, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm just going to be nice. And you kind of grit your teeth. And what, has, what is actually in there is not the response that you're actually putting forth. What is in there is what Jesus is getting at. You see, there's still some internal work that needs to be done in us. And so that's what Jesus begins now to address. You see, it matters more what you do than what you say. Because what you do comes out of who you are. What you say, you can kind of guard. You can pick and choose. You can sort through your thoughts mentally. You're just like, well, you know, I'm not going to say that. Even though I'm thinking this, I'm going to say that. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, a passage that you should all have highlighted and underlined. And it says there, Paul writing to the church at Corinth, the church that admittedly was pretty messed up. They, they, were, the, they were the jacked up church. They, they, they kind of didn't have it all together. And he spends his letters basically correcting this messed up church. You are our epistle written on our hearts. Known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, and not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, of flesh that is your heart. He, he says, look, you guys, as a representative of the work that was done there in Corinth, that this little group that came and ministered to you, you are actually a living epistle. You're an epistle that someone can come talk to. You're an epistle that can be touched. You're an epistle that can touch others. And so he says, you're a, you're a living epistle. You see, people may not, now hear this well, people may not pick up a Bible, but they can read you. They can read your life. They can know about the Lord by watching you. You see how this ties into this morning. You see, you should be able to be imitated, and what comes out of you should be 
not that guarded thing that you protect, but the real you. That attitude that's internal, and it's so deeply internal that when people read the book of your life, when they read the story of who you are, they read about Jesus. They're all of a sudden going, wow, that's life-changing, that's transformational, that's not normal. One of the greatest compliments someone can pay you as a believer is to tell you you're not normal. So when someone says you're kind of a little bit touched, you say, yes, that's what Paul said about us as well. We're out of our minds for the sake of Christ. We seem a little touched, a little daft. And what happens is you start loving unlovable people. You start actually caring about people who've done horrible things to you. And you stop picking up battle axes and you start picking up palm branches and olive leaves, love gifts. And I say to you which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, and bless them who curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. Now, I don't know about you, but when people treat me poorly, my natural inclination is not to do good to them. That's not my natural inclination, but praise God through the work of His Spirit. Then all of a sudden I'm like, you know what they need? They need a dose of Jesus, not a dose of Jeff. They need to see that God loves them because the problem is not just me. The problem is how they perceive the entire world that they live in. There's something wrong inside of them and it needs a touch from the Lord. And in that very way, can you imagine how much Jesus loved Judas? Jesus Jesus loved Judas He actually looked at Judas on the night he was betrayed and he said, Judas, are you going to betray me with a kiss? Don't you know I love you? You're not going to do this, are you? He loved Pilate as much as he loved Peter. Think about it for a second. Jesus is standing in the courtyard of Pilate And Peter, as much as Peter was a knucklehead, you know Jesus loved Peter. Amen? Look at all the crazy things that the Lord did with Peter. All the very special experiences that we have recorded in the Gospels that Peter got to engage in. And he was was like the, the, he was the poster kid for failure. You know, it's like look up how to do it wrong and there's Peter's face on the milk carton, you know. He loved Annas as much as he did Andrew. He, He poured love towards the man. Can you imagine Jesus praying for the man that was beating him in the court of Pilate? Can you imagine he's being flogged? Jesus was actually praying for that man. I know it. I know he was. And the reason we know that is what he cried out from the cross. Remember what he said? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He died for the man that crowned him with the thorns. He prayed for those that nailed him to the tree. That's the kind of love that Jesus was talking about in the Beatitudes. That's transcendent love. That's love that goes past all the circumstances, the junk in our lives. Because we all have stuff, right? Everybody got stuff? We all got stuff. 
There's things going on in our life. There are things that we wish we could change that were not the way they are. There's all kinds of things that we can think about. Probably all of us would come up with a fairly massive list if I said, okay, well, write down all the things that you would like to change in your life that you don't like about your life. I'm pretty sure every one of you would come back with at least 10 things on your list. So we all have stuff. We all have things. The question is, what are you going to do with it? How are you going to react towards those things? What's going to be the thing that comes out of you? Look at verse 29. And to him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer him also the other. And the one who takes away your cloak, don't withhold your tunic. So these two garments, which were typically the most expensive thing anybody ever owned. You've got a cloak and you've got a tunic. You've got the, basically the undershirt that's a little bit long that goes down to about mid-thigh. And then you've got the tunic, which is a little longer, sometimes all the way down to your feet. But they were very valuable. So much so, that's why they cast lots for Jesus' garments. They were worth a lot of money. So he says, look, if somebody decides that they're going to take something from you, it's better that you give them everything you have than you lose the opportunity to minister to that person. So give them everything. And people revile at that. And, and all he was saying is, look, you're, you're not going to do anything by striking back. It isn't going to accomplish my plans and purposes for that person's life. The moment you read this passage, people always throw at you, well, you know, am I allowed to you know, defend myself? Yes, of course. But even in defending yourself, you need to be as gentle as you possibly can, so don't break parts that count. Somebody attacks you, you know, do as little damage as is possible. Share Jesus with them. It's a contrast. You see, you see the law was very specific. And, and when you go back to Exodus chapter 21, you go through this law and you're like, okay, so if he knocks out a tooth, you knock out his tooth. Gouges out an eye, you poke out his eye. And it goes on and on. If you, you lose a foot, cut off his foot. It's like terrible. And when you read it, it's like, man, can you imagine being alive during that day? You know how parents have to deal with the things that their kids do? So, you know, your, your child goes off to school and comes back and he's knocked out somebody's tooth. So mom and dad come over to your house. Well, we've come to knock out your child's teeth. It's not going to be a very fun existence, is it? I'm thinking not. And yet that was what the law does. That's what it still does. The law is tit for tat. The law says, look, okay, somebody harms you, you harm them with equal measure. That's what justice does. Aren't you glad that the justice that's on your account, the justice that's necessary for you to get to heaven, has already been taken care of by Jesus? So you don't have to exercise that justice yourself. And that's what Jesus is getting at. Look, I've already paid the price for all this stuff. You don't need to do it again. It was a hard issue. Grace loves, the law calls for justice. Now look at the second kind of behavior. Pick up in verse 30. You have behavior towards those who've hurt you. Now how about our fellow man? Verse 30, it says, Give to everyone who asks of you, and to him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And then... The, the golden rule. One of these amazing sayings of Jesus. There are two of them in this next passage. But just as you want men to do to you, you also do likewise to them. Now notice it's in the positive. 
It says, what you want them to do to you, you do also to them. Not don't do to them what you don't want done to you, but you do to them what you do want done to you. In other words, it's emphasizing the good that can be done. It's not emphasizing you not doing bad things. It's emphasizing you actively doing good things to other people. It's saying you do good to other people. Period. And then he qualifies it by saying in verse 32, But if you love those who love you, what credit is it to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And he's, he's making this case. He's going, look, people, when they can get something out of someone else, they will normally do whatever is necessary. Somebody loves you, you generally have a tendency to love them back. That's, that's our can even be greed. It can be completely wrongly motivated. It can be selfish, totally selfish. Well, I'll do good to somebody, they'll do good to me, and then we'll have a good club. But you really know where your heart's at when someone does something wrong to you and you still do good to them. Notice the emphasis on the positive. You do to them what you want them to do to you. They've already harmed you. Forget the harm. You go do something good to them. It'll freak them out. They will totally lose their minds. They'll be going, there's something wrong with you. And if you've ever had this experience, you know exactly what Jesus is getting at, and you know exactly that what I just said is true. When you do good to somebody who's been evil to you, it flips their mind. They're all they're going, okay, what are you after? And they'll throw out all kinds of other questions. No, I really just want to love you because obviously... That's what God wants me to do. And they're, well, I don't want to, don't love me. I've actually had people tell me that. I don't want you to love me. Well, too bad. I'm going to do it anyway. Well, no, you're not. Yes, I am. Get into an argument with them about who's going to love who. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, In other words, when you give somebody something in hopes that you're going to get something out of them, what good is that? What credit is that to you? Or even sinners lend to sinners to receive back as much or even more. But love your enemies and do good and lend, hoping nothing in return. In other words, give it away and you don't care if you get it back. That's just not the way it works in our world, is it? You don't know Jesus. This stuff is impossible. And great will be your reward in heaven. And you will be the sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and the evil. And you want to know how to prove that? You. God is kind to the unthankful and the evil. And in fact, it is his kindness that has led men to repentance to begin with. God doesn't start by beating us up. You know, he doesn't come and, you know, you're just pummeled into submission. That work of the Holy Spirit comes and all of a sudden you start getting that little thought in your head, maybe this isn't the direction I should go. And God shares with you this truth that he actually loves you and would like to do something wonderful in your life. And you're like, oh man, I I just don't deserve that. And then you struggle against those things that God's been working at. And, And that's one of the hardest things at times for people to come is to receive his grace because we know we don't deserve it. We've done everything we can to be going the wrong way and he's still saying, Jeff, I love you. We're supposed to be like that towards everyone, towards our fellow men. 
and therefore be merciful, just as your Father is also merciful. And then he goes on, verse 37, and this oft, absolutely misquoted passage of Scripture. Uh, completely taken wrongly. It says, judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and it will be forgiven unto you. It, it almost sounds as though there's conditional forgiveness there and that we should never ever judge anything ever at any point in time. And the rest of the Gospels give us a little insight. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, and be put back into your bosom with the same measure that you use. It will be measured back to you. And so it becomes clearer that the whole point of this is, look, I don't want to be judged. I, I, so I judge very sparingly. I don't want people to be critical of me, so I'm not critical to them. I have no desire for people to be unmerciful to me because I need mercy. I surely don't want people to be unforgiving towards me because there are times when I absolutely, desperately need forgiveness. And so the point is, with whatever measure you do these things, so if you're one of those people that wanders around and your whole goal is to see who you can judge today and you've got that kind of judgmental spirit you're just looking for the wrong in every single person what jesus actually says is you better beware because that's going to come back and bite you because the person that you judge you better be able to withstand that judgment yourself and when we look at it from that direction i go real light on the judging because I know me. I know that I'm not going to pass that test a lot of the time. I always tell everybody, you be very thankful people cannot read your mind. Can you imagine? We're all wandering around in here and there's like a little teleprompter behind your head with all your thoughts. It's like, oh no. Not going to be good, is it? And then he spoke a parable to them. And I love this because he illustrates it for them. Can the blind lead the blind? Will not they both fall in the ditch? You see, if somebody's got a judgmental spirit and they're judging other people, and and then they lead this other person to think that what they ought to do is be judgmental, they're both going to fall into the ditch of judgment, right? If you have a person who's unforgiving and they teach somebody to be unforgiving by being unforgiving and that other person turns on them and they're unforgiving, they both fall in the ditch of unforgiveness. And for we who are here that are on staff that are pastors and do marriage counseling, I can't even tell you how true that is. Because you find someone who is unwilling to forgive, who is unforgiving towards someone, that someone then becomes unforgiving themselves, and both of them attack each other with unforgiveness, and both of them fall directly into the ditch of unforgiveness. I need to be forgiven. Matter of fact, I'm not getting to heaven without it. I need God's mercy. I do not want Him to give me what I have earned. That's what mercy is, right? Mercy is God withholding the the things that really ought to come to us. It's kind of like you've ever had 
issues with your children and you're, you're trying to you know, instill in them some sense that, look, this is a serious issue and there's going to have to be a real punishment meted out in this circumstance and you tell them in advance, look, you do this, here's what's going to happen to you. And then you get to that day where they've done that. It's like the third time they've done it and finally it's like, okay, you know, we're going to have to have a family. We're going to sit down and, and they are like shaking in their boots. They're like, they're, like gonna, they're squirming in their seat. And then you have the opportunity to be God's hand of mercy. Oh, what a glorious thing. And very often you don't need to mete out punishment. You can simply say, this is the mercy of God. I'm not going to give you what you earned. I'm going to give you mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment is what Scripture says. And so Jesus is saying, look, towards your fellow man, how would you want to be treated? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. In other words, if you actually uh, take the whole plan, put it all together, ultimately, if we're all following Jesus, and we start to act like Jesus, and then talk like Jesus, and walk like Jesus, and be Jesus to other people, then ultimately, instead of all falling into the ditch, we all fall into the arms of Jesus. It's like, Lord, forgive me. I don't know how I got so messed up. And for my part, you see what happens then is you start treating other people so much like you would want to be treated yourselves that you end up getting from them exactly what you need. Now, there's no guarantee. They can certainly choose to do it otherwise. But I'll tell you, the fruit of doing it the other way, which is start beating on people, will get you exactly what Jesus said. You want to have lacking mercy in your life, then be unmerciful to other people. I can almost guarantee you people will be unmerciful to you. If you want to be judged, then you just overtly judge people all the time. Question their motivation about everything. One of the, one of the great difficulties of doing counseling is that very often you have to not focus in on what is the motivation for why people do what they do. You see, our world especially in in counseling, is looking for the reason why people do what they do. Let me save you a lot of trouble. Because we're sinners. That's why we do what we do. Because there's part of us that is still that old unredeemed nature, and we do dumb things. Well, people are looking for, well, you know, was was this the root cause? You know, is it some repressed memory somewhere? Yeah, there's probably some repressed memories in there. There's probably some stuff in your background, in your life, in your lineage. There could be all kinds of things in there. But at the end of the day, it's your choice as to whether you're going to be merciful. It's your choice whether you're going to be kind. It's your choice whether you're going to be gentle. It's your choice whether you're going to be forgiving. It is your choice how you respond to everything. That's you. That's you. Very often it shocks us, doesn't it? I, I, I will tell you, it shocks me when I hear people, you know, maybe they've lost a family member. There's been some horrific murders of late to where, you know, some murders, you, you almost go, well, there was a situation there where that was just a bad situation and somebody was bound to get hurt in that situation. But I'm talking about when there's a, a mom home with her kids and someone breaks in 
and brutally murders her. And then to hear the dad who loves the Lord, actually was a pastor, by the way, to look, I, I, I don't know. I'll never know this side of heaven why, why this young man did this, but I've been praying for him ever since it happened. And not only do I forgive him, I hope that he comes to know Jesus. You see, that's not the world's way. That's Christ in us, our hope of glory. That's what Jesus is getting at in, in this passage. Love looks on compassion on the, on the beggar, on the burglar. Love just simply sees with compassionate eyes. It always does. It sees past the, the crazy stuff. It sees to the point that our material possessions are actually temporal. Remember, this is not our home. And so everything that's here is like camping equipment. Okay? It is. It wears out. And you've got to replace it every once in a while. And it's not what you're going to actually have in your house, right? Nobody goes home. I, I would imagine most of us do not go home. And there in your living room is your camping tent. Right? You don't have your camping stove in the kitchen. None of those things. You don't have the, you know, because all those funky pots and pans that you save up that you use to go camping, you put them, you, you don't use those at your house. They're, they're for camping. Well, right now, because your home is not here, your home's in heaven, you, you've got a really nice house in heaven. Right now, you're here camping. And so all this stuff, you're not taking it with you. You won't need it when you get there. And so Jesus is saying, look at it that way. If somebody takes this stuff, they, they took your camping pot, okay? They snagged your old, ratty, gnarly sleeping bag that your dogs have slept in. And it's not like they took something that ultimately really matters because your home is in heaven. And so he's telling everybody, have, a, have that eternal perspective. And so those two uh, famous sayings of the Lord both found here, the, the, what we call the golden rule. It's reduced to the simplest terms. A child can understand this. Can you imagine if the world practiced it? Can you imagine if the world practiced it? It'd end all wars. Every last war would never occur because nobody wants their home bombed. Amen? So if you want somebody to, to do that to you, then you do it to them. Well, no, I don't want it. So the negative is also true. Poverty. I wouldn't want to be poor, so I would never do anything to make someone else poor. I would be giving. It dissolved. Man, every lawyer would be out of work, wouldn't they? Nobody would be suing anybody because nobody wants to get sued. I would want to do good to that person. I don't know why they got, you know, I, I don't know why that car accident happened, but I know at the end of the day I'd like to not lose my home over it. So I wouldn't do that to somebody else. The court systems wouldn't be needed. It would cure every sickness. It would end all immorality. It would put an end to drunkenness and gambling and drug addiction. It would dissolve every gang, every crime syndicate. It would take care of every street gang. It would end racism once and for all. If we just, that one verse, verse 31, and just as you want men to do to you, you do also to them likewise. 
never another person would be in slavery to another. Because none of us, <coughs> none of us would ever want that. Prejudice would be gone. The Lord's demands in this passage are revolutionary. Then he says, on top of that, it's bad enough that he says, okay, well, here, live this way. And then he says, judge not, lest you be also judged. Look, here's, here's the deal. Me as a pastor especially, I've actually been called to judge things. Very specifically, the teaching of God's word and whether it's accurate or not and presents the gospel message. If you don't believe it, Titus chapter 1 says this, verse 10, for there are many insubordinate. In other words, there are people who don't have the truth Idle talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, actually talking about people who are trying to add something to grace, the law, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not, and for the sake of dishonest gain. And one of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars and evil, lazy beasts, gluttons, whose testimony is true, and therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in their faith. So there's a place for calling out false teaching. It has to be done. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about judging the motivation of somebody's heart. He says, judge correctly, judge sparingly. Don't do it frequently, don't do it often, and do it for the only for the purpose of godly correction with the point being restoration of a relationship. The Lord actually just saying, look, don't attack the motives of other people because you don't know what's in their heart. You have no idea why they think what they think. They might just be like us, just not too bright sometimes, right? Anybody ever had one of those moments to where you look back on what you said, what you did, what you thought, why you thought it, and you go, man, I have no idea where that came from. Anybody go through that? I have. I have. It's like, I don't even know, I can't tell you how I came to that conclusion. It's an assimilation of details that something that happened in my life, and all of a sudden I'm I'm like on a different planet. And I look back on it, man, I am so glad that somebody didn't judge how I got there. And if you just looked at the end result, you would say, man, there's something wrong with his head. No, there wasn't anything wrong. I did what sinners do. I erred. I had a bad day. I did something dumb. We need to be forgiven at that point in time so we can move on, learn, and grow from it. Verse 37, it says, Give and it will be given unto you good measure, pressed down. It's really saying, look, we need to be also generous. These are revolutionary. We don't like to be generous. We're kind of stingy. We even guard, I, <laughs> it's pretty funny, I was over having a tire, tire changed. And I had a lady, she was standing in the lobby, almost screaming at the top of her lungs about the change that was in her center console that two quarters were now gone. Look, let me give you a little secret. I have no idea how much change is in my truck. So if you want it, you can have it. But this lady was, she was like off the charts, ballistic, crazy nuts. Well, I know there was two more quarters in there. Now, admittedly, maybe it mattered for some reason, some big thing. But she was like, wants to, she wants to call the police for 50 cents. I'm like, at that point, it's like, look, 
okay, are we really going to you know, bother the police to have them come for a couple of quarters? I felt like I almost got the quarters out of my pocket, and then the guy actually went to the cash register and gave her two quarters. We need to be generous because the Lord's been generous to us. Amen? A third kind of behavior. Verse 41. And it gets to the point. We're going to make it fairly quickly here. And this is towards our human faults. Anybody have human faults tonight? Oh boy, howdy. We all do, don't we? If you're the perfect person, can you like do a class and we'll all come? You can tell us how to be perfect. No, we all have our issues. We've got stuff going on in our lives. Verse 41, and why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but do not perceive the plank that's in your own? Uh, and most of us have heard this passage of Scripture, but when you really think about it, this is like the most ridiculous thing on the face of the earth. Imagine like you know, half a tree sticking out of this guy's face and he's looking at, and, and the guy over here, and the splinter, the word for splinter here is actually so small that the naked eye probably wouldn't perceive it. It, it is something so small as to be imperceivable. And, and so there's a speck in your brother's eye, but you can't see the tree sticking out of the middle of your face. And you're trying to get over to where you can see this guy's thing, and you're whacking him in the side of the head with the log that's sticking out of your own face. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me remove the speck that's in your eye when you yourself do not even see the plank that's in your own eye? And then he says something that we, you know, most of us don't really like to be called hypocrites, but it's so true. He was so focused on somebody else's little issue that it is inconceivable that he might actually have a problem himself. That's when you get to the bottom of what makes us hypocrites. Because we all have some pretty glaring things. Now, maybe the whole world doesn't know about your stuff. But you do. And let me give you a little secret. So does God. God knows your stuff. And so in one sense, he's still referring to the process of judging someone. And so what he says is, look, You're a total hypocrite if you've got this massive tree trunk hanging out of your face and you're trying to see the speck that's in your brother's eye and you're helping him. It's back to the issue of the blind leading the blind. You're both going to fall in the ditch. And so he's saying, don't be a hypocrite. And that word translated there means multi-faced, and it was the term that was most often used for a Greek actor. And so, again, the Greek actor very often would wear a multi-faced mask. There'd be a smiley guy on this side, and there'd be a sad person over here, sometimes three or four different faces, and they would flip them around to be whatever they wanted to be, and whenever it was necessary, they could go from happy to sad, they just bounce them back and forth, and then there'd be the mean face on the other side, But inside it was the same person. It was an act. And so it is for someone who can't recognize that, look, I got some issues myself. What am I doing concerning myself with speck finding? Trying to to help someone remove that little time. This is not a good thing. I heard a poor guy, it's like his exegesis was terrible. I mean, he actually tried to turn this into something that was good. 
Well, he's trying to be helpful. Yeah, by knocking him dead with the tree trunk hanging out of his face. No, it's, this is not somebody trying to be helpful to someone else. This is someone who cannot see their own issues are actually bigger than the issues they're trying to solve in someone else's life. We need to get it. We need to get that. Look, I always tell people, look, I got enough stuff of my own. I don't need yours. I have things in my own life that God's working with me on. Look, I'm, I've been in the ministry a long time. There are things that God's still working out in every last one of us. I'm overly busy sometimes. I'll tell you what some of them are. There's one of those things. Connie will bear witness to this. I don't know how to sit still. It's, it's a near impossibility for me. I'm one of those people that after like three and a half seconds, I've got to find something to do. And so I'm always doing. And because I'm always doing, sometimes I miss those quiet moments. God wants me to sit and be still, and I'm like, well, I could squeeze in eight more Bible studies in that amount of time. That's one of those things God's still working in my life. He's saying, slow down a little bit. But if you were to watch, you might judge the fact, well, you know, he's, he's never quiet before the Lord. Well, I spend quiet times. It just doesn't look like yours. It may not look like anybody's. And he goes on. He says, first remove that plank out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly. You see, if you deal with your stuff first, then you can be helpful to other people. But if you won't deal with your own stuff, you don't have any business trying to help anybody else out. Because you're going to find out you've got enough stuff of your own, and once you deal with that, then you can be beneficial in other people's lives. That's why many are called and few are chosen. That's why that narrow calling to be used in that way in some people's lives exists. And he goes on to illustrate this point. He says, for a good tree does not bear bad fruit, and a bad tree doesn't bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its fruit. You see, if you're really focused correctly, then you're going to see these things correctly, and good fruit will come out of it. It will not be the hypocrisy. It won't be the judgmental attitude. It's not going to be an ungiving spirit. The right fruit will hang on your tree. That's what will happen. Men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. That's pretty simple. He's using an illustration. Yeah, of course, grapes grow in grapevines. And if you go to a bramble bush, you're going to get thorns in your fingers. That's going to be a bad thing. And a good man out of good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure. You see how he's setting this whole thing up for this final thing, this, this final thought, this final idea. You see, it's what's already in there that has the capacity to come out. The evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You see, first there's criticism. Then there's corruption. That's what happens when, you, when your heart's not right. When your heart's not right, you're going to be someone who's a critic. 
You're going to be somebody who ultimately is corrupt. And so it is to those people. You see, irrevocably, you're, you're going to ultimately expose what's inside. And so he says, out of the good treasure, and out of the abundance, and out of the evil treasure. You see what he's saying? He's saying, what comes out is what's already there. That's why when people say to you, you know, well, well, I didn't really mean to say that. Well, that's actually not very accurate. Because you say what's in. That's how it gets out. Now, you may not may it may not have intended it to cause the harm. You may not have wanted to hurt somebody with those words. But the fact of the matter is those things were on the inside. And that's how they got out. And so he clears all of this up with his fourth behavior, and that's that outward behavior uh, of our faith. Very few people, if you look at this sermon, can ever stand next to it and, oh man, I got this nailed. Verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things I say? (laughs) Why do you say that I'm the master And you're the slave, you're the student. Why do you say that I call the shots and then when I call the shots you don't do a thing that I tell you to do? Why do you do that? You see, if we have belief that behaves, then attitudes lead to actions. If we have belief that behaves in a way that's pleasing to the Lord, then your attitudes are going to be borne out in your actions. That's what will happen. Why do you call me, Jesus says, Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I tell you to do? Why is that? What's the reasoning behind it? He's asking a question. Most of you know this, but Britain is currently ruled and and probably will be indefinitely under a constitutional monarchy. And a constitutional monarchy means that there's actually a constitutional form of government, but there's actually a king, or in this case, the Queen of England. The Queen of England appears to have power. The Queen of England sits on the throne. The Queen of England is actually the queen. She's actually the monarch of Great Britain. But nobody does what she says. They basically make up their own rules. The parliament does that. The people do that. So you have a figurehead. Can I tell you that there's an awful lot of Christians that believe God's a figurehead? Why is it that you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do the things that I say? You see, sometimes we treat God like he's a monarch. But we still run the show. And Jesus corrects that thinking. And that's what comes next. For whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them. That's the illustration. So all of this is now to say these few words towards the end. He says, look, don't try pulling the speck out of somebody else's life. Remove the log from your own. You better love your neighbor. You need to be merciful and kind. You need to be giving. You need to be doers of the word is what he's saying. He's saying, look, do these things. Don't call me Lord, Lord, and then don't do what I say. And if you do, whoever comes to me and hears these sayings of mine and does them, this is, in other words, the conclusion of what he's just previously said after he spoke the Beatitudes. 
I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the floods arose and the stream beat vehemently, and that word actually means to rupture. It's a medical term that Dr. Luke is using there. In other words, the picture is things are going to burst out into your life every once in a while. You're not going to be able to control them. There's going, to be a, there's going to be a burst blood vessel in your life someday, and, and you're going to be needing life support. He's like a man building his house and dug deep and laid that foundation on the rock, and when the flood arose and the stream beat vehemently against the house, it could not shake it. You see, someone who hears the word of the Lord, and Jesus is really Lord, and does those things is like the person who digs all the way down to bedrock, builds her house on the bedrock, when the storms of life come, you're not going to give in to the pressure. That's why he tells this. After saying, you better be careful how you judge. After saying, you look, you need to be generous. After saying, you need to love people who hate you. He says, now, do these things if you want to have a solid foundation. Don't just hear them and go, "Uh uh-huh. Don't just shake your head in agreement and go, well, that's really nice. Don't be what James said was a hearer only and not a doer. Because a hearer only is deceiving himself. Be a doer of the word. That person's life is founded on the rock. And so the question then becomes, what kind of foundation? You see, because he then follows it up with the negative example, the tragedy that can befall us. But he who heard and did nothing is like the man who built a house on the earth without a foundation. In other words, he just went out and plopped his house down in the dirt. I can tell you, being a builder, not going to be there very long. Not going to withstand even the the winds we had a few days ago. Your house was going down to Pedro. (laughs) And against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell in, and the ruin of that house is great. You see, this last little section is the culmination and actually the illustration of everything that he said all the way back to the beginning of the Beatitudes. He said, take all these things and don't just hear them and nod in agreement. Take all these things and do them. If you want your life solid, if you want your life built on the firm rock that is Jesus, then do what he says. Love people who don't love you. Somebody takes something from you, if you have an opportunity, just give it to them and tell them, you know what? The Lord loves you. And you be generous with people. And when they have need, you give them what they need. If you want your house built on a rock. And then when the storm comes against your house... You're going to be okay. The storm of life's going to beat, and you're going to be just fine. 
because it's built on the rock. You're not just going to be a hearer. You're going to be a doer. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, these things really, truly, unbelievably are (laughs) impossible without you. Lord, how can we love people who hate us? How can we do good to those who abuse us? How can we give without reservation? How can we turn even a blind eye to those who might take our stuff? How can we help someone who's slipped and fallen when we ourselves are already laying down? And Lord, the answer to all these questions is by being a doer of the word, living our lives in such a way as to be completely pleasing to you. And Lord, we admit that that's unbelievably difficult. It's hard. But the good news is, is your grace is sufficient for all of our weaknesses. Lord, where we lack, you have in abundance. And so we pray that you would anoint us to that. God, help us to remember exactly who you are. And Lord, help us to build only on that solid foundation that is you, Jesus. As we hear the truth and the truth sets us free, Lord, help us to walk in that truth. Help us to never waver. We're grateful for your love. We're thankful for your kindness and your care and your tenderness. For your forgiveness, Lord. Oh God, how we need forgiveness. How we need your mercy. Lord, how we need you to work in our lives. And Lord, we're so grateful that you have. And you've withheld nothing. You've given us everything. And Lord, help us to love that way. We bless you. We're so grateful for your love for us, and we pray that we would be in like kind and be loving to others. Lord, be gentle to others. Be merciful to others, forgiving to others. Lord, help us to build on the solid rock. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. And God's people all said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand?